Cabo Ponte, the man who brought you War and Peace and Dr. Zhivago, comes a totally new motion picture experience. A journey into the bizarre, terrifying world of the psychosexual mind. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's up? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all the social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Podcasts. If you'd like to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, man. Uh, it's still, still January. It still is, which means it's still January Giallo here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And today, we're going to continue talking about the Giallos of one of the great Italian horror filmmakers, Sergio Martino. And joining us once again is Friend of The Void, frontman for the band Repulsion, also a member of Cathedral, and a ton of other kick-ass bands please welcome back to the void scott carlson how you doing scott i'm still doing great yeah we're completely not recording these back to back at any <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep up the myth here about as drunk right now as i was at the end of the last episode you can remember <laughs> that far back yeah so it's gonna it's gonna be a wild one this fall. it's all downhill from here folks too much j and b in the <laughs> Uh, so, last episode, we talked about Martino's collaboration with Edward Fennick. This time, we're going to talk about the Giallos he made without her. And, you know, I know, like, the Fennick stuff gets a lot of love, but, like, Martino didn't do a lot of wrong when he made Giallos. And, like, at least three of the four of these, I think, are absolute bangers, too. There is one dud, and it's a rare dud for Martino, but we'll get to that when we get to that. But up first, we're going to talk about a movie he made the same year as Strange Vice's Mrs. Ward. It is The Case of the Scorpion's Tale. The film stars Ida Galli, who is also in Lucio Fulci's The Psychic and The Bloodstained Butterfly. And we also got Martina favorite George Hilton and Your Vice's Lock Rooms, Anita Strindberg. The film was produced by Sergio's brother, once again, Luciano Martino, co-written by the great giallo scribe Ernesto Gastaldi, and has another blistering epic score by Bruno Nicolai. And for those of you who haven't seen it, a widow inherits a small fortune, which is always a bad sign in Giallo. Anyone has an inheritance, you're fucked. However, before she escaped to a retreat with her secret lover, the widow is brutally slashed to death and the money is stolen. Now an insurance investigator and his journalist love interest must figure out exactly who's murdering anyone involved with the late widow and why. A strange gold cufflink holds the key to this mystery. Now, it might have to do with the get-up the killers wearing in the movie, but there's a little bit of a Euro-spy vibe to this one that isn't really in the other Martino ones. I mean, the guy kind of looks a little danger-diabolic. 
Yeah, out. like uh, strip nude for your killer or uh, or something. You know, it's like a the the outfit is it, it's pretty styling. And the one thing I noticed though is the pants vary from nicely tailored to shitty, but it's all black and the outfit's cool. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great look, and it's like it's full on like what you want from a giallo black gloves and fucking shiny fucking straight razors. I mean, this one, I, it, you know, for a movie where people die violently, it has a pretty breezy pace to it. And it kind of feels fun, which is another reason why I kind of think Euro spy in the vibe. I'm not saying like, if you're expecting like a James Bond kind of rip off or spoof that this is what you're going to get. But I just feel like at least in the tone, it's, it's kind of fun. Hey, we're on vacation in Athens, and people are getting murdered. So, you know that that's the that's the bonus there. Like uh, normally, we're watching Isjalo, and we're in some polluted uh, metropolis in Italy, and this time we're we're in Athens, a polluted metropolis uh, in Greece. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's sunny, and uh, everybody's having a good time, sipping on cocktails chain smoking and uh in between murders and it's funny that they call it when when they tell her that she's inherited a fortune they say you've inherited a small fortune then they proceed to tell her that it's like a million fucking dollars in 1972 <laughs> which is not exactly a small fortune in 1972 that's a i mean even today i wouldn't sneeze at a million dollars but come on 1971, 72, uh, you know, 500,000 pounds sterling was uh, quite a bit of money. Enough to kill for, I'd say. Yes, <laughs> killed she was. Now, this movie, like the other Giallas we talked about, there's a lot of twists, misdirection, red herrings, and there's a lot of good kills. You know, typical throat slashing. There's also a guy that catches up. A bottle in the eye. There's a guy who gets his hand cut that's hanging off the side of a building and he dummy drops to death. Which we forgot to talk about. All the cool dummy drops that are in these Martino movies. Absolutely. There's one in Your Vice that, you know, the Ivan Razumov one in Your Vice's locked room. There's the one at the end of All the Colors of the Dark. This one has a pretty good one too when that guy falls off the building. I feel like this one kind of gets ignored because it came in the middle of the Fennec trilogy, so to speak. Like, it's, like, really just right in the middle of it. But I, I think, for what it is, it's a really fun movie, and I think it's a really it's a really well-done giallo. Yeah, it probably didn't have uh, quite the distribution, maybe, uh, of some of the other ones. I'm not sure. Um, it definitely was a film that wasn't really, didn't seem to be discovered until, like, you know, the DVD era, you know, like being able to buy these films like when you know it's it's kind of i still consider it sort of a miracle that like <laughs> there's two volumes of obscure jolly on blu-ray and all of martino's jealous that we're talking about are available in like criterion level restorations with uh embarrassment of you know extras more so even than your average criterion disc so um, we're living in a great time. What a great time to be alive, guys, when we can buy all of Sergio Martino's giallos and even his giallo-adjacent films on high-def Blu-ray with shitloads of extras. You can learn lots of shit about these movies, and it's pretty amazing. But yes, getting back to the point, Case of the Scorpion's Tale was sort of, 
you know, uh, maybe fell through the cracks a little bit, but maybe didn't deserve that fate. No, I mean, it's got actually a really good U.S. trailer, and I know because I I almost played it last year as one of my 16mm choices when I did January Giallo, and, like, my plan was, fuck you, Pandemic, was to show the, there's a 16mm print of this film, and I was like, really, like, I was excited to be able to show it this year. It's like, yes, I can get Case of Scorpion's Tail, I'm going to show it. Obviously not happening this year. Maybe one year unless we all die at some point. Which I feel like is on the table at any point this year. Just how fucking crazy last year was. The one takeaway, and I think it's just a slight knock. It definitely came out of that peak during Argento's Animal Trilogy. Where everyone shoehorned a fucking animal into the title. Yeah. But this film has like so many colorful characters the grease you know the athens setting it makes it feel like really expensive and like you know the ending towards the end when uh when george hilton and anita strindberg are on the boat and they're like scuba diving and shit it's pretty pretty lavish and the i i think i can't remember the name uh but the cinematographer who i think worked on most of these films is really great and again sort of like Sergio Martino where he's not a well-known cinematographer but is uh or you know known like you know celebrated like uh Dario Argento versus Martino but he, his cinematography is really fucking good and uh throughout all of these films that we're talking about and like Martino um it's just more of a workmanlike uh extremely competent level of of professionalism that that shines through with all this stuff because this movie looks fucking great it sort of stands out amongst the shallows of the period because of some of the you know the character actors that are in it um that sort of kick it up a couple notches i'm kind of curious if luciano ended up getting like bigger budgets for his brother and all of these because like you're right all these movies look really really good like really good scope photography on like every single one of these movies and because like there was a lot of giallos that were also coming out of this period that look cheap as shit no disrespect to anyone i think they just you know they had a really competent crew they i mean they used a lot of the same actors over and over again you have you know strindberg alberto uh de mendoza um, Luigi Pastilli's in this one again. You got another Bruno Nicolai score. You've got George Hilton. You know, it's like the, the same people are in all these movies. They trusted each other. And they the, obviously the cinematographer worked a lot with Martino. And I believe Gastaldi also was writer on this. So it's a lot of the same people. Um, so they knew what the fuck they were doing. And they were on a roll creatively. Um, you know, it was a magical time in Italian cinema. And uh, this film, like, to me, is it's just as good as all the other ones we're talking about. Um, like I said, I was in the last episode, I was trying to, like, put together a rating, like, you know, one to six for these six particular films that we're discussing. And this one uh, would be hard to place. I mean, obviously, it would be behind um, all the colors and... Um, man, I guess maybe it might fall in at number four, but... It's hard to say because uh, the the one of the other ones we're going to talk about soon is also really fucking great. But yeah, this movie's pretty awesome. I love the fact that um, Janine Renaud, who I believe is a French actress, 
um, who is in uh, something else I just watched, The Castle of Creeping Flesh, which Severin just put out. Um, she's like a, she is the wife of, of the guy, I can't remember his name, um, the actor that stars in Seven Women for Satan. Oh, Michael Lamore. Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, the woman I just mentioned, Janine Renaud is his wife. Anyway, she's in it and she plays the mistress of, of Evelyn Stewart's husband. And her sidekick is this dude with like a crazy scar on his face and big muscles who is just like, who the fuck is that guy? Like, he's just one of those characters that shows up in a shallow just to make it fucking insane. <laughs> you know, I mean, this one, that's one thing to say. It's like they're all insane, but like the way Martino handles even the weird offbeat characters, it all fits. It doesn't feel like it's just like we're just throwing in this random fucking character actor or just weirdo for the fuck of it. They all work. And it's like, it's almost a treat to just see what fucking weirdo just pops up in these movies. There's also, uh, I just remembered as we're going through this, there's a sort of like psycho-inspired um, aspect of this film where the woman at the beginning of the film, who is, seems like she might be the protagonist, is knocked off like one-third into the movie. And then everything, you know, uh, like, a, like a few of these movies, like when Edward Fennick comes into uh, Your Vice, they, they shift gears. And then and there's another movie we're going to talk about in a few minutes where it also shifts gears at a certain point. And this movie, like, does a, you know, sort of becomes a different film from the point that um, the Evelyn Stewart character is killed one-third the way into the film in a really fucking awesome set piece where she's in her hotel room getting ready to check out and the killer is like, fucking carving through the door with this night flick he's got like a switchblade and he's like carving on the door it's a really fucking great sequence you know it it's kind of sad because they stick that in the trailer like i don't know if you if you've seen the trailer or remember the trailer like they definitely to watch trailers I mean, I only watch them after I've seen the movie, kind of thing. You have to watch them because you're you're programming films, and you 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 know you need to like show trailers to people to get them to come to the movies. But um, I believe what John Waters said a long time ago is that trailers are gener generally a public service announcement to not see the film. <laughs> I can't argue with that, but the 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 case of the Scorpion's Tail trailer definitely puts the psycho thing in. I think they actually have a comparison, like, not since Hitchcock thing in the middle of the trailer, or at the beginning of the trailer. Like, they definitely sell it, but, like, they, there's something weird about 70s trailers. They're either really good, or you see the whole fucking movie. And I always think of one of the worst trailers ever made is the Black Christmas trailer. It's four minutes long. You see the entire movie. Everything you see it from beginning to end condensed in four minutes. Pretty much all films nowadays, the trailer it's like it's like from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. They show you the whole fucking thing in the trailer. But the the international trailers are weird because they they keep like flashing like the names of the stars and the title of the film, but there's no voiceover. Yeah, because it's supposed to be added in later or something. So they're. You're just like for three minutes or four minutes, you're just sitting there like watching like scenes from the movie and you have no context or nobody hyping you on it or anything. You're just kind of like, hmm, okay. Uh, and sometimes you're like, 
like you see the Robo War trailer and you're like, I need to see this fucking movie immediately. Or you see the trailer and it's just showing you a bunch of random scenes from a giallo that don't always like, you know, sell the movie because you're not you're not getting the context. I will say this in defense of the giallo trailers, especially when they start doing the weird color effects, like the layers on them where they get all like kind of psyched out. They don't always work, but like they make for cool imagery. Like when I do like video collages and stuff like that, I love that shit. There's definitely trailers where like not a fucking word explains anything. It's just a series of images, and I don't know if they really works to sell the movie, but visuals are cool. So yeah, Luigi Pastilli is in this one, who is also in uh, Your Vice, but uh, he's actually a nice guy in this movie. He's a cop. I think even Hilton is a little bit nicer in this one. Although there's a little bit of scumminess to him. Just just a tad. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that he... Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just the hair. We won't spoil that for you, but... Well, you know, we already talked about all the colors in the last episode. And, and um, you know, even in... Like, we, we didn't quite bring that up. But in, in the end of that one, it's like, you're, you're not really sure. Like, in the last, like, two minutes or so... All of a sudden, I'm like, kind of questioning, like, man, I thought that this might be the one movie where George Hilton isn't a fucking scumbag, but he just might be a scumbag in that one, too. You know, even with his dashing good looks, he's got to be a bit of a shitheel. Yeah. I really like the case of the scorpion's tail. I think it I think it stands up there with the uh with the rest of them and it holds its own, you know, it maybe gets a little bit less credit because it doesn't have Edwidge Fennec in it, but um Anita Strindberg is an absolute stunner. She's got like absolutely fucking piercing eyes and high cheekbones and um she's a great actress. And uh, in this film, she's pretty confident, you know, unlike uh, like the character that she's playing, say, in uh, Your Vice, where she's, um, you know, sort of like a, a victim, so to speak. In this film, she's more, you know, she's sort of a jet-setting uh, reporter, and um, she does a great job. I think. It's a precursor to Daria Nicolata's role in um, Deep Red, a little bit. We're going to take a quick commercial break when we return. We're going to be talking about a movie that... I'm sure a lot of you have been waiting for us to talk about here on the January Giallo edition of the Cinematic Void Podcast. 1920, The Golem, directed by Paul Wegner and Henrik Galeen. 1926, The Battleship Potemkin, by Sergei Eisenstein. 1930, M, by Fritz Lang. 1931, Large Door, by Luis Bunuel. Four great pictures. Four masterpieces on violence. Today, Sergio Martino reaffirms this classic violence with... The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. Welcome back. We've been talking about the giallos of Sergio Martino here on the Cinematic Void podcast with friend of the Void, Scott Carlson. Up next, we're going to talk about a little film from 1973. It has a very long title, which is on par with most Martino movies. That title is The Corpses Show Traces of Carnal Violence, a.k.a. Torso! Torso! Rated R. 
<laughs> yep, we're finally talking about Torso, probably the most well-known and beloved of Sergio Martino's Giallos. Uh, the film stars um, Giallo vet Susie Kendall, who you can see in Dario Argento's The Bird with Crystal Plumage. And it also features Salon Kitty's Tina Amont. And Eurocrime star Luke Miranda and John Richardson, who was in Eyeball, as well as Mario Bava's immortal classic Black Sunday. Again, it was written by Ernest Gastaldi, along with Sergio Martino. Features a score by Guido and Maurizio Del Angelis. And it was brought to you by the man who produced Dr. Zhivago, Carlo Ponte. Because when I think of Torso, I think of Dr. Zhivago. So what is it about this one that, that makes it the most popular out of all these and the most well-known? Is it just the the novelty of that crazy trailer? Or, or why is this one the one that's that's known? I'll go first, I guess, because um, Jim probably has an opinion on this too. But I think maybe it was the fact that it had pretty wide distribution in America. I think Joseph Levine, maybe, yeah, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, released this film. So it had pretty wide distribution, probably played every grindhouse in America and every every drive-in in the country. And so it was seen a lot. You know, we can get into it more in a minute, but I think it also is like, um, not only is it a giallo uh, in the classic sense, but at a certain point um, in the third act, the it sort of becomes like a, like the, the, you know, precursor to like a, Halloween and and uh, it's even pre Black Christmas, but it but it has uh, like a cat and mouse um, slasher sort of finale that makes it arguably you know one of the first slasher films. I the other thing I think it's definitely distribution because this one had a wide release at least Grindhouse Drive-In Circuit, and it was also frequently paired with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So. It was going to get recognition no matter what because it's you know paired with probably one of the greatest American horror movies ever made. But yeah, definitely Torso does something that um, you know it it's definitely a giallo, but it definitely veers towards proto slasher, and a lot of it has to do because it goes away from like you know most giallos operate by the people who are getting murdered or because they know something they found something out. Torso, this dude just fucking hates women and it's going to start killing them. Which yeah. is more in line with what the slashers became. I'm not saying all slasher and misogynist, but let's be real here. Most of them tend to be. Well, we start out in in the city. Uh, I can't remember what city it is now. Um, but is it Milan or Rome? Maybe Rome. Yeah. It's Rome. But they're they're in the city, and uh, it's a bunch of college schoolgirls, and uh, they're all like partying and having a good time, and. Uh, this little group of friends, um, st- they start getting like uh, knocked off in very violent ways, and there's a, it, it feels very Jalo esque. It's the you know it's urban and uh, the lo- you know the lighting and uh, that scene in the in the swamp. Um, going back to the last episode where we were talking about hippies, where the girl goes to the um, the drug party to the drug party. Not to be confused with the drugs party in 526 by GBH. She goes to the drugs party and uh, and she like kind of like scams those dudes to get her stoned. And then she puts the joint out on the dude's chest and like walks out of the party and goes out into the like a bog or a swamp or something. And uh, 
and uh, she's just walking around. Like, why she decides to walk through the swamp, I don't know, but it's pretty cool. It makes for a great fucking set piece. And, uh, you know, all, all of that early part of the film feels very Jalo-esque. Um, just kind of like, oh, here we go, another another Jalo film. Until the creepy uncle, um, well, maybe he's creepy, we don't know, who is also in, like, every fucking Sergio Martino film. He's, he's in all of these films in, in, as some character, uh, it seems like. And uh, the uncle, like, tells the girls, like, why don't you go stay at my villa out in the countryside? And uh, once they shift out to the to the villa in the countryside, everything changes, and we are no longer in like familiar shallow territory. It does have a shift, and I guess the other thing that kind of pushes it towards the slasher is that the look of the killer. Obviously, he has black like motorcycle gloves with or driving gloves or whatever, but he's wearing a fucking ski mask, which you know kind of sets up all the weird, stupid masks that you know, slasher characters wear. What's really weird, though, is that the character is wearing the slasher mask in the early part of the film when he's murdering people in the city. And then when we switch out to the country where the film becomes more slasher-like, we never really see the killer's face anymore or his, even his mask. So it, it's... But but it's you know it's there. It's impl- already been implied earlier in the film, but it's like... It's sort of like the, the two paths don't really connect other than in your mind. They don't connect visually on the screen where you see like the the slasher part of the film um, sort of and the killer's face at the same time, I guess is what I was trying to say. Yeah, it, it's definitely a weird shift. And like the other thing that happens that isn't very Giallo-like is body disposal, especially once they're at the villa and like the killer starts like hacksawing people up and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, I guess at this point, we can throw back to your second favorite milkman in a Sergio Martino. Or, yes. is, it, or is it your favorite milkman in a Sergio Martino film? Uh, you know what? I got to say, this is probably my favorite milkman. Uh, and uh, just because of his ridiculous dialogue. But we, so we, we end up in this um, little town in the middle of nowhere. And every man in the town is ogling these girls when they show up. They're like, it's like they've never seen a female body before. And they're all standing around sort of like, oh, my God, look at these chicks. And, and like saying really fucking piggish kind of shit about women. And uh, the weird thing is they're, like, pretty harmless. They don't actually try and go up to the villa and rape them or anything like like you might imagine. But, you, you know, when you're watching these guys um, and listening to them talk, you're, and you're knowing that you're watching an Italian horror film, they very well could have, like, you know, taken the plot in that direction and had these, like, townspeople, like, uh, go up to the villa and try and rape all these girls or whatever but they didn't go there instead these guys just talk a lot there's there's a lot of dialogue uh <laughs> between them just added in for almost like a comedic purpose of these guys like talking about uh the women that are staying up at this um villa and uh there's another townsperson who is the milkman who much like Dario the Milkman, who is also a motocross racer in Your Vice is a Locked Room, 
this guy is uh, actually more of a doofus who like delivers the bread and he talks like this and during the midst of what you were just saying like body disposal like so interestingly Susie Kendall is in this film and she's great we should mention her because she is really sort of like the 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 central protagonist she shows up after all the other girls at the villa because she I can't remember exactly why but she's like oh I got something to do so she drives up on her own after the other girls have already shown up there on a train which was also um they were riding with Luke Miranda who plays the doctor um who factors into the ending quite a bit but uh so Susie Kendall shows up on her own the next day and she takes like a sleeping pills or something because she's not feeling well she goes to bed the other girls are partying she wakes up the next morning and all of her friends are murdered well all off camera so we don't actually see them get murdered but we do see them get packed into pieces by the murderer while Susie Kendall is hiding away which is where the film sort of feels very much like a slasher film and uh, in the midst of this really intense, like, final act where the killer is cutting up bodies and disposing of them, and Susie Kendall is trying not to, to be noticed in the house, there's this milkman shows up, and he says, like, uh, Oi, I need to collect the empties, or something like that. <laughs> it's like this comedy act, like, thrown into the middle of this super intense scene it just kind of is a weird thing but you know it's it's italian cinema so you can expect the unexpected but yeah that's a pretty bizarre like interruption in the middle of this like tense moment where you're like holy shit you know you're kind of like you're kind of involved in this you know and you're you're like oh fuck i hope she gets out of here how's she gonna get out of this fucking house she's trying not to breathe trying not to make a sound and then the milkman shows up and it's like this doofus guy <laughs> makes you laugh in the middle of it you know i i kind of wonder if some of this goofiness is inherent from the english dub on it because there's a there's a as much as i think this is a well-constructed giallo proto slasher there's just there's some goofy shit in it the big one is the red and black scarf because i think there's a line of dialogues like oh that wasn't a red and black scarf. That was a black and red scarf. And it's like, what's the fucking difference? <laughs> yeah, like, who, how would you remember that? Wait a minute, it wasn't red on black. It was red, black on red. American cinema, like, grounds, it's like, tries to, like, ground itself in reality a lot. And, like, everything, that you know, we have, uh, I don't know that European or even, like, Asian cinema, did they really have, like continuity uh directors the way they do in american films where like we got to make sure that like if you're wearing the glove in that scene you're wearing the glove in that scene like they didn't really that kind of shit just didn't really matter we don't really need a, a continuity director so you kind of like let a lot of shit slide like um you know logic little bits of logic like how did that person end up there were they following them the whole time or like what you know what the fuck it's like you kind of have to like let some of that stuff slide i guess because there are it's gonna have you're gonna otherwise you're gonna be like spending the whole time going this is fucking bullshit i don't i don't believe any of this i think that's part of the charm of you know a lot of the euro trash cinema and it's definitely the charm of this movie like yeah some of this stuff comes off goofy but like it makes up for it in just being amazing and awesome and like going places where i think a lot of american filmmakers would dare not tread 
either because they're afraid of absurdity, they're afraid of going or afraid of going too far in one direction or whatever. And I mean, this is why I like I love Italian genre movies because they gave no fucks and like whatever they did, even if they made a shitty movie, they went all in. Regardless of if I like the movie or not, you can tell it's like fuck it. We're just going to go for broke and just see what sticks. I, I like that a lot, too, about um, a lot of, you know, Hong Kong cinema from the similar era. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter if the effect is, like, absolutely flawless. Let's just do it. And people will get the idea. And, like, if you can't use your imagination and, like, you know, take it the extra, you know, carry it over the fucking goal line for me then you're, you, you have no imagination. It's like, I don't need the movie to be, I don't like fucking CGI. I would rather see a person driving in a car with a fucking green screen behind them. I know what you're, you're trying to do. You're what you're trying to tell me you're driving in a fucking car. I don't need it to, I don't need a fucking camera mounted on the outside of a car driving through town. That works too. But you know, I, I, I can, I can buy some pretty cheesy shit. And like, look right past it as long as it's entertaining and interesting. Which most of the time, uh, these films that we're talking about are they have that in fucking spades. Exactly. Now, a couple interesting things I learned about this movie, or doing my research, like during production, none of the cast was told who the killer was, and because of the high amount of red herrings in the film, which there are plenty, many of the actresses were convinced it was someone else doing all the murders that was unrelated to anything going on. Of course, when you see the ending of the movie, it kind of is that anyway. <laughs> do, you, do you think that they decided who the killer was going to be maybe while they were making the movie? I mean, like, the the killer in this particular film is a little bit of a cheat compared to some of the other ones because he's in the movie uh, for a couple of minutes at the beginning and then doesn't factor into it at all again until the last couple minutes. So it's... It is one of those, like, you know, I think I've seen even Castaldi talk about this in uh, in uh, interviews on some of these discs where it's like, oh, you, you can't cheat. You know, you can't you can't do that. You can't like you can't you can't cheat the audience and like you can't like, you know, sell them short on the ending. But they kind of do a little bit with the killer in this one because it's like it could have been fucking anybody. And it really, there's, it doesn't make any fucking sense that the killer is the killer, except for the fact that he explains it all at the, at the end in the last, in some bit of dialogue. So it kind of, you know, in, in that sense, I would put this one below um, some of the uh, more, you know, tightly scripted ones that we've already talked about, because it's sort of like, is a little bit of a letdown at the very end, only because possible, um, killers have been ruled out and here we are with the fucking i don't even i don't even think they're ruled out it's just they decided to go with this you know character that was in the film for three minutes at the beginning and and then explains it like that that's that's my one real knock on this movie is that the killer's motivation is a bit wacky it it's it's two different things first he watched his brother die while trying to retrieve a little girl's doll and then you know fell off a cliff and then his first two victims are these two girls he has a threesome with who decide they're going to blackmail him. I guess they're, I can't, re I can't remember if they were his students or like, we're going to tell everyone you fucked us and you're going to give us money. So he just kills them. So it's like, 
Is that really the motivation for this? To fucking start hacksawing people? So we get dummy death there as well, so... Yeah. Bonus points for that. I mean, I like this movie a lot. It's just... It is um, a little uh, less than the others because of the fact that it's sort of... You know, this is like the last um, real giallo that uh, Sergio Martino made. Maybe, and he had made several in a very short period of time. Maybe he was a little less inspired this time than the other ones. But the, the his craftsmanship um, carries it and for the longest time uh, until the other night thought that like I hadn't really seen a Sergio Martino movie that I didn't like um, because he, he he is incredibly competent. He sells everything. It's It's really well done most of the time. And Torso is really well done. It's well shot. It's got a fucking great score. The actors are all excellent. That's the only thing. It's like the killer. You're kind of like, ah, oh, well, okay, whatever. I, I mean, I enjoyed my, it up to this point. I mean, my personal opinion is all the ones we talked about thus far are probably nines and tens on a scale of one to ten. I I always kind of think torso is like seven and a half to an eight and a half. Yeah. And it's and it's yeah, most and it's mostly because the ending is a little bit. I don't want to say it's a complete cheat because the guy was in the beginning, but he was in the movie. Yeah. He he did he didn't randomly show up. He was there. Now, before we close on talking about Torso, we gotta talk about that absolutely fucking ridiculous marketing they had for it in the US, which is that trailer that used that fuzz tone guitar by Alan Parker from his song Hippie. The Every time someone says Torso, Torso, like it is one it's it's so stupid, it's brilliant. Because, like, when you just hear that guitar tone and the word torso over and over again, I mean, Exhumed, like, basically wrote a song that was just basically that and then sampled the torso trailer on top of it. When you see the trailer, the the American trailer, you think you're going to be watching the Texas Hacksaw Massacre. Yeah. I mean, it the trailer kind of does it a disservice because it sells it a little different than what it is. But, like, for... For a marketing ploy, it's a fucking wonderful, bizarre, bonkers way. And, like, you have to see that fucking movie once you see that trailer. Yeah, I don't think American teenagers in 1974 were, like, uh, hopping in the fucking Camaro and thinking, hey, let's go see a Jallo. You know, if, if they wanted to see a fucking hack and slash. Yeah. And... Sold it that way. And they sort of get it, but... Before we close the door on Torso, we close its locked door and put its vice in with the key in whatever way you want to call it. Here's some of the salacious taglines that they stuck on this movie for the U.S. release. Torso, it saturates the screen with terror. That's a pretty good one. Enter, if you dare, the bizarre world of the psychosexual. Yeah, it's interesting that that, uh, they call it psychosexual... And uh, it, it's weird how they deal with that in the film because the killer, uh, he like, well, he kills people and then like squeezes their tits. <laughs> like that's okay. Maybe I'm jaded, but like uh, that's not exactly, you know. You don't. You don't. You don't see Jason Voorhees cop in a field after he fucking machete someone. No, but I mean, I've seen Paul Nashy do it. Have you ever seen uh, Orgy of the Dead? Yeah, I've seen Orgy of the Dead. 
yeah, there's a pretty great corpse fondling scene in that film. So yeah, it's a little like it's a little tame in the uh, psychosexual department. Like it's not exactly like he's a murderer rapist. He's like a murderer titty grabber. <laughs> he makes a big huge cut in their torso, torso, and then he and then he kind of like you know fondles the boobs a little bit, which is which is definitely unsavory, but. Um, it's a weird quirk, which leads us to this final tagline for Torso, which I can't actually believe this was on any posters, but I apologize in advance for this one. Torso, where whores meet Sauls. <laughs> wow. What, what marketing guy's like, how do we sell this movie? I know. This will get the kids in the theater for this one. Yeah, that is, that's pretty fucked up. In general, I mean... We're uh, obviously jaded to be even watching these films because they're they're inc- if you, like I watch a lot of these movies with my wife who's never seen them before and like she's totally open minded about it. But I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of rape in these films. They're very rapey and like uh, you know, generally in, in Italian cinema. I mean, they're obviously these we're talking about people who are um, these these are not nice people by any stretch of the imagination, but there is an awful lot of like sexual assault and uh, really abhorrent behavior from uh, the men in these films. All of them. It's kind of a, I don't want to say it's interesting because it's not something that really interests me, but it is a thing that is carried through a lot of giallos. Like as much as it has strong women from time to time and like, you know, empowering, there's a lot of, you know, sexual assault and rape tied into it. And a lot of it's kind of shrugged off. And I always think of um, whether they've done the Solange where um, Fabio Testi's character is having an affair with one of his students. And then after the student's killed, he gets back to, with his wife. And she's okay with it. Well, the other thing that's funny about, uh, like, I want to say three or four of these movies at the end, maybe three, two or three at least, um, where at the end, like, the, the female protagonist... Uh, lover has either been killed or is the killer and is going to prison or whatever and then she gets in a car with another dude be it a uh, cop or a reporter some other reporter who like saved her life and they look at each other like yeah like we're like like she's just gonna move on with that dude (laughs) (laughs) just keep living that jet set lifestyle of the giallo yeah, it's so yeah, it's a bit weird. I mean, obviously, you know, these movies are popular with a lot of women, you know, Jalos. They have a lot of cool, you know, stylistic things in them, but a lot of them are, are incredibly misogynistic and it's almost something that uh as fans of this stuff, we just sort of like overlook because it's we know it's from a certain time, like it's it's stuck back there. You, you know, you could never make a Jalo film today. Even these ones that, like, you know, these neo Jalos that come out nowadays, they they're never going to be completely authentic because they're never going to be as politically incorrect or nasty or racist as some of these films are. So yeah, you can never really pull this off today. What they did back then, you just you, you can't make you can't bring this back, and not that we should. Let's just admire what we have for what it is it's a time capsule of a very different world a very sleazy world 
a very it's scuzzy world. I like I said, I love the you know the the please the Tesco film. So um, you know that gets even worse when it comes to you know rapey beating people up and you know uh, insulting uh, minorities and and people with disabilities and all kinds of shit. It, they're just crazy. I mean, it's like, it's almost like part of the charm. It's like these films are so blatantly and enthusiastically sleazy that uh, you just can't help but love it. I don't have to agree with any of the characters in the movie, but I can enjoy watching it for what it is, which is a complete ridiculous <laughs> trash fest. I've, I've always said, you know, one thing about, um, you know, whether it's music or, or films or whatever, any, any sort of entertainment, like all I want out of it is entertainment. I, I particularly loathe um, Hollywood films because they do always try to like, it's funny because they, even in like superhero films, they try and make it believable. The visuals and the, and the logic behind it. They try and find a way to make it believable, but comic books were never fucking believable. And you didn't want them to be, you just read them because you know, you were fucking laying on your bed and you had fucking 30 minutes to kill and you picked up a comic book and flipped through the pages. You didn't need it to be um, realistic. And now they make these movies like Wonder Woman and shit where they're like everyone, you know, like it's it's got to be realistic. And I don't care about any of that. I just want to be entertained. Yeah, I agree. With and, that. And, uh, and I find Italian films, especially Giallo, Please, Tesco, horror, whatever you want to call it. You know, Lucio Fulci's gothic films. I mean, they, they don't make any fucking sense. I don't care. Probably says a lot about me or very little about me, but I don't care. I, I love that shit. I, I'm all for that. I'd rather see maggots fly through a window for no fucking reason than see a movie try to make something realistic that shouldn't be. But we're going to take another quick break, but we're going to return... We're going to talk more about Sergio Martino as he drifts away from the giallo, but still keeps a little bit of a toe in it on the Cinematic Void podcast. Enter the bizarre world of the psychosexual mind. From Carlo Patti, who brought you Dr. Zhivago, now... Torso. 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 It saturates the screen with terror. Torso. Rated R. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about the giallos of Sergio Martino here on the Cinematic Void podcast for our January giallo. Up next, we're we're kind of getting out of the giallo. There's still elements of this in this movie. It's I'd say it's kind of a hybrid of a giallo and Eurocrime, but it's definitely drifting closer to the latter. I'd put it in the same category as something like Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, 
But unlike that movie, this film has a bit of unexpected twist with some broad comedy thrown in. You got your graphic violence, you got your action, you got slapstick comedy. And we are talking... Yeah, it is. This is a fucking wild movie. Yeah, Yeah, totally entertaining. And uh, man, the fucking Arrow restoration looks like a million dollars. It's the suspicious death of a minor, a.k.a. too young to die. It's uh, the film stars Claudio Casanelli, who was in another great Giallo Eurocrime hybrid, What Have They Done to Your Daughters? And he was also in a ton of other Sergio Martino movies, including Slave of the Cannibal God, Screamers, and Fist of Steel, where he met his untimely death during a helicopter crash. The movie also has veteran actor Mel Ferrara, who is in one of my all-time favorites, Nightmare City, and also features the screen debut of Barbara Bagnolfi, who is best known for her role in Suspiria. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's up to Detective Jeremy to investigate a girl's sex traffic ring with connections to a bunch of powerful people. Again, it's not a straight-ahead giallo. It's definitely close to Eurocrime, but then it's the fucking comedy that's throughout this movie. It, it is a fucking wild movie. Yeah. It's weird because it kind of like the sort of vibe or, or feel of the film sort of jumps around quite a bit. And like just just when you think all the comedy is out of the way, like the, something pops up again. But it does get a lot darker towards the uh, towards the end of the film. It's a little more or at least a little more serious. Um, the whole film is sort of lighthearted in a way for a film about a teenage prostitution racket. Um, it's pretty lighthearted. <laughs> it's the only like you know broad comedy uh teenage prostitution racket film i know of if you go in with unhampered expectations you will be pleasantly surprised but if you're expecting straight up giallo or straight up euro crime you probably be disappointed but like i think this movie is really top notch because as much as it's totally all over the fucking place it's fucking fun I feel like you sort of have to be a bit seasoned to watch this movie at all because of the fact that it's mixing uh, a few genres that were sort of like Italian cineast. You've seen Giallo's and you've seen Plesiotesco and you've seen one or two at least, you know, Italian comedies. But to just dive into this movie like with cold feet, you would be, you would, you would probably just think it was a pile of shit because it is all over the place but once you if if you've if you've seen enough of this stuff to appreciate the different notes that it's striking then it's actually pretty fucking good and claudio casanelli is fucking really good in it so he sort of um manages to keep the whole thing elevated the whole time he's pretty strong throughout he's really great in it i think there's you know the the I think one of the prostitute murders is really graphic, and it's probably the most giallo aspect of the movie. But there's a lot of great, absolutely insane action sequence, and like probably the bet, the biggest set piece, which you can, I don't want you ruin it, but like, well, I'm gonna ruin it because I have to talk about it. Is the fucking roller coaster chase? Never could I imagine that there would be a a chase that ends up on a roller coaster with people shooting at each other while they're riding on a roller coaster. Well, shoot up on a roller coaster. I meant to look up, I meant to, I didn't have time to look at um, Nightmare City to see if that was possibly the same roller coaster at the end of Nightmare City. I don't know. I have to research it. I'm kind of curious of that too. I it's probably 
different, but like, who knows? That scene is fucking pretty insane, though. There's like a fucking roller coaster shootout scene. It is probably one of the best things I've seen in any movie. Period. It's just like when I first saw, it's like, holy shit! I can't believe they're fucking doing this. And like, it is a little goofy, and it kind of plays into the slapstick aspect of it. But it's really well done, and it's like. Again, like I never thought I would see a fucking shootout on a roller coaster. There's like a the at the towards the beginning of the film, like I I was sort of like uh, the first sign that it's actually going to be sort of comedic is after the opening um, sequence where Claudio Casanelli tries to engage with the the red haired curly haired girl that ends up getting killed. They're at like a, a dance hall or something, and he's trying to talk to her, and uh, they start dancing, and uh, it's weird because there's this music uh, in the in the film that sounds like uh, it's it's a total ripoff of Deep Red. Oh yeah, that plays I... over the opening credits, and then right after that, it's like the, the whatever the I don't know who did the music in that film. I can't remember. It was. Um, it, it wasn't uh, a... Luciano Michelini, and yeah. uh, like that opening piece is like total goblin ripoff. It's got the thumping, like like yeah. sort of throbbing bass line. It's like the and then right after that, it cuts to this like dance hall scene where like... um, Castelli is trying to talk to this woman. He's trying to like pump her for information or whatever. She takes off and she ends up getting murdered, and then we end up in her like the police show up at her apartment and uh that's the first sign that there's like comedy in the film when the inspector asks uh something like he says something like um any telltale signs of love juice as <laughs> he's trying to say like is there any like semen or like dna at the crime scene but he says telltale signs of love juice <laughs> The other thing about that, like, the main cue, which is definitely deep red cash, but it also goes into, like, this, like, typical, like, what you would listen to at, like, a generic Italian restaurant cue right after it. Well, yeah, there's, like, some, like, uh, you know, Bud Spencer, uh, Terrence Hill sort of, like, uh, you know, goofy Italian 70s music thrown yeah. in there, which is, like, juxtaposed with the sort of goblin-sounding stuff. Torso has a similar thing. Like, some of the music is, like, like we're in the, when they're in the country, some of the music is, like, really goofy. And then there's other bits of it that are, like, superb. I mean, I think the goofiness is also part of the charm of this movie. And like I said, and I think we, you know, we already discussed it, or discussed it, is that, you know, if you've watched a lot of Giallos and you're looking for something else that, like, isn't quite in the exactly like the 800 black love killer movies, this will be up your alley because I think if you, if you get into it or you allow yourself to get into it, you're going to have a blast. Yeah. I thought it was cool. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, when I watched it recently, I bought the, the Blu-ray a long time ago and just never got around to watching it. But, um, it is like, a you know, it, it it's got a pretty good pace to it. It's it looks great again. You know the, the transfer is fucking immaculate. Although I read that Ernesto wasn't very particularly, he was not a big fan of this movie. He kind of referred to it as a minor picture and said like, "It's like yeah, normally Sergio knocks out of the park, but it just it didn't quite work." I I also kind of wonder if maybe he's just like 
it wasn't well received when it came out in Italy, and that kind of skewed his opinion. Because well, he made like um three or four movies that year. Like the it, it was seventy five and um, Violent Professionals, which is a fucking great. It's not part of this conversation, but absolutely awesome in my opinion crime film by uh sergio martino with luke miranda in it and a couple other people who appear in these other films but yeah uh violent professionals is a great um film that he made the same year and i want to say either um silent action or gambling city were both the same year so he was kind of like on the uh the pleasy tesco tip that year but you know, this particular script sort of like dipped back into the shallow a little bit and probably um, works better. It's probably more shallow-esque than, than Pleasy Tesco because it's, it doesn't have enough, it's not mean-spirited enough to, to be um, Pleasy Tesco completely. Like most of those films are really cynical and, and really violent. And this movie's, like I said, it's light-hearted. Which is something I didn't think we would ever say about a Giallo. But we're going to take another quick break. But when we return, we got one more Sergio Martino Giallo or Giallo-esque title to talk about here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. The Violence Professionals, an army of paid assassins. The Violent Professionals takes you on a death-defying non-stop ride from the back alleys of the Mafia hideouts in a desperate dash for freedom. The Violent Professionals takes you to the top, to the king of crime. Time is getting ripe for us. People are finally beginning to get fed up with the power vacuum in this so-called democracy. You have 30 seconds to go. 30 seconds. Come on out with your hands in the air. For the hunted, there was no escape from the rogue cop. Your time's up. Turn killer. <laughs> the Godfather gave you an offer. He gives you no alternative. Take the most terrifying, incredible, death-defying roller coaster ride ever shown on the screen. For those who would defy the law, there is no escape. The only way out is death. See The Violent Professionals, starring Richard Conti and Luke Miranda. The Violent Professionals. Nobody's death wish. Welcome back. We've been talking about the Giallos of Sergio Martino here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, and we're down to our very last one. And unfortunately, as much as we've been saying these movies have been like somewhere around 8 to 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, this is probably the only dud in the bunch, and it kind of hurts me to say it because I love Sergio Martino, and I think he's made a lot of terrific movies. He made lots of fun movies after this one, but this one doesn't quite work, and we're going to get into a little bit as to probably why. It's from 1982. It's called The Scorpion with Two Tails, a.k.a. Murder in the Etruscan Cemetery, which, sorry if I butchered it, Etruscans. <laughs> the film stars... Elvira Audrey, who was in White Slave and Nosferatu in Venice that Severin's getting ready to put out, a.k.a. Klaus Kinsey getting that extra Nosferatu paper for some reason, has Paolo Malco, who you've seen in Fulci's House by the Cemetery in New York Ripper, Claudio Casanelli's back, old Hollywood legend Van Johnson shows up for some reason, and 
everyone's favorite like character actor and cop in a horror movie, John Saxon, also appears, be it very briefly. The film was produced by Luciano Martino and it was written by Ernest Gastaldi and another legendary Italian horror scribe, Dardano Scaghetti, best known with you know for his collaborations for Lucio Fulci. The film also features another Fulci collaborator on the soundtrack, Fabio Frizzi. For those who haven't seen it, Joan has these nightmares about these ritualistic sacrifices. She knows the language of this ancient cult that her husband, author, who's an archaeologist played by John Staxon, is like kind of you know, going through their tombs and find their treasures. In a nightmare, she sees her husband's death, which ends up happening for real. Now, apparently this was originally intended to be an eight-part TV miniseries. And while there's some giallo mystery elements, it definitely kind of falls a little bit into supernatural horror, as well as a little bit of Euro crime, because for some reason there is a big, fat, heroin-smuggling subplot shoved in there. And... I'll just be honest, it this movie's doesn't work. <laughs> just just to be blunt. It could have been called The Scorpion with Two Turds, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it this this you know, not every filmmaker ha- can bat a thousand and you know, I love Sergio. I loved every single one of these movies we talked about. This one and this was a first time watch for me and I've kinda avoided it because I've heard nothing for but bad things and Boy, was that fucking all those reviews accurate. The funny thing about this film is like the it was apparently made in like 1982, but it has more of a 92 vibe to it, like right down to the poster art, like the it has like the guy with the the knife that's on the like some of the house by the cemetery posters. It's weird. The artwork and uh, it just feels like one of those like film mirage titles yeah Uh, it's like uh it feels like it definitely feels and looks like made for tv the lead actress is like a zombie she's completely devoid of life there's like nothing in her eyes there's like she's kind of like looking at it almost looks like she's reading a script that's like sitting on the table most of the time generally just very bad and john saxon probably could have helped but you knew you were you knew things were um not looking good during the opening credits when it says and including the participation of john saxon not starring or featuring john saxon including the participation which um amounts to about like two and a half minutes of screen time tops and uh and he and he's gone you know i don't really see a lot of like jalo um elements in this film it's more like almost like an action adventure like you know indiana jones meets uh you know crime thriller meets supernatural thriller like it's it's kind of all over the place but none of it is like in a good place it just kind of like it's everything's half ass and there's a lot of like fall like dry ice pumped into the cave scenes and just really in general just doesn't work and it's weird because uh i recently like uh on my on my social media page like i reviewed uh a really um what i thought was kind of a cheesy but really um entertaining sergio martino film called um uppercut man I said something like, you know, I've, I've yet to find a Sergio Martino film that I didn't like. 
And uh, this weekend I did indeed find a Sergio Martino film that I do, don't ever want to see again. <laughs> this is probably the only Sergio Martino film I've ever watched that I never want to see again. Let's just look at it for what it is. It doesn't feel like a Sergio Martino movie in any of the slightest way. And I don't have any confirmation on it, but it kind of feels like this was set up to be some kind of Lucio Fulci project. You know, because there's little bits of Gates of Hell, Manhattan Baby, and House by the Cemetery in there. And there's also a lot of maggots, which, you know, Fulci loved his maggots. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of um, Lucio Fulci um, film score cues in it as well from Fabio Fritzi. Like, like most of the, the, the central music cues are from, uh, or like remixes at, at the very least, of um, City of the Living Dead, Gates of Hell. Um, so you're you're all over. It's familiar all over the place, and it definitely feels like one of those phoned-in Fulci movies from the end of his career. Where although I don't even know if it's that good, you know, in, in some cases, like I I think I might rather watch The Ghost of Sodom than uh, <laughs> Scorpion with Two Tails. It's shockingly bad considering how great everything else I've ever seen by Sergio Martino is even when it's not good, like, you know, like some of his movies are definitely like uh, cheesy. We were talking uh, during the break about uh, American rickshaw and uh, hands of steel. You know, those movies are like, like they're not like necessarily masterpieces, but they're like really high energy and they have a lot of um, charm to them. And this film like has no charm. It really is like an anomaly in his career the closest thing i can think of in terms of like uninspired drek is the great alligator which is better than this movie i was i just couldn't believe it like it there's other little touches i feel like i i do feel like phoned in fulci is kind of where this lands but like i really if fulci didn't even pick up and pick up the phone if he just like took it off the hook and went and took a shit or something like I mean, there's psychic vision stuff, which also Fulci kind of dealt with. And, like, I mean, it doesn't lack... The murders are just, like, basically dudes breaking each other's necks. Kind of half-assed. And, you know, it's it just lacks personality. It's a lot of people walking around with uh, masks on the back of their heads. But the one bright spot in this film, if we have to, like, pick one, I would have to say is that Claudio Casnelli is back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's great. He's always great to watch. So he doesn't have anything to work with here, but uh, but he does at least, like, you know, rise above the rest of the cast as far as, like, you know, commitment and um, ability. This feels like a complete, terrible, lifeless TV movie. Although, I think my favorite scene in the movie has nothing to do with the horror. There's, um, there's a scene where Van Johnson's character, like, he's the lead character's dad. And he was basically using um, John Saxon's character Archaeology Dig to smuggle heroin. And he gets these crates and all the heroin's missing. So they have this montage where fucking... I don't even know how old fucking Van Johnson was at this point, but they give him a crowbar and a pair of, like, bolt cutters to cut open all these, like, metal, like, things and, like, crowbar open all these goddamn crates... And I'm pretty sure they made Van Johnson open every single one of these crates because there's a cutaway of him where he just looks, the fuck am I doing in this movie? Why am I opening all these goddamn crates? It's like, I was a big-time Hollywood star. Now I'm opening goddamn crates in an Italian TV movie. The funny thing about Van Johnson in this movie, though, is like he's he's acting 
he you couldn't tell that he used to be a Hollywood actor because he he comes across as like a like an extra in a John Waters movie. Like he's clearly reading he's kind of shouting his lines and uh like it all they all sound like he's every time he speaks it sounds like he's reading it a cue card. Um oh. he's not he doesn't bring anything other than like cheese. You know, and like he very much sort of like John Waters-esque sort of dialogue delivery from Van Johnson in this movie. Oh, I mean, it's all hard. It's like, oh, your husband's like, I think he refers to John Saxon's character as like a, like a, a slob or something like that. And like, but he's a famous archaeologist. Well, archaeologists could be slobs too or something like that. It's just like, it's only entertaining because I feel like he was really suffering and really confused to go through it. I have nothing against Van Johnson. I'm just saying that like, his misery was the least part of my entertainment in my miserable experience of watching yeah. this movie. It's funny because uh, when you mentioned that, it made me think of the way that Richard Conti is treated in Violent Professionals because Luke Miranda like beats the fuck out of uh, Richard Conti, who was like maybe a year away from death. Uh, he was only like sixty-five, but he maybe he lived a hard life. I don't know. He. He, uh, he he passed away not long after making uh, Violent Professionals, I think. But um, Luke Miranda like beats the living shit out of him. I mean, there's some of it's a stunt man, but still, there's several scenes that are actually Richard Conti um, getting getting his ass beat by Luke Miranda, who's a young and very uh, able at the time. Richard Conti's last movie was the. Exorcist ripoff, Exorcist 3, was it Cries and Whispers or something like that? <laughs> what a way to fucking go out. And like, yeah. I mean, he granted he shows up in the last like 20 minutes of the movie and gets his last paycheck and uses it to probably pay for his funeral right after, but yeah, sometimes these old Hollywood guys, they don't, they don't go out too well, especially when they hit the Euro circuit. Indeed. We're going to take one last break, and then we return. We're each going to pick a Sergio Martino movie we like a lot more that isn't a giallo and isn't this movie on the Cinematic Void podcast. Hail, fellow gentlemen of the road. Oh, God, look what's turned up. My apologies, madam. I am happy to report that Lady Luck has smiled on me today. I hope it's a bottle of scotch. Not simply scotch, my Lancastrian friend. A mingling with the finest malts from the house of Justerini and Brooks. The names of no less than eight illustrious monarchs grace the label. Oh, oh a fine blend. Ah, yes, very good. I might even shoot down to the country for the weekend, do a spot of poaching. What? International elevators are up. Uh, you should take the Times, you know. Much better coverage. I say, Bertie, what's your golf handicap? No clubs, old boy. Mustache appointment with my tailor. J&B the Scotch, with a touch of class. Welcome back. Now, instead of doing what we normally do here, which is rewatch and listen, Scott made a suggestion when I asked him to do the, these episodes of the podcast that why don't we all just pick a non-Giallo Sergio Martino movie to kind of talk about. And, Nick, you've been a little bit quiet this episode. What you got? Uh, well, to be honest with you guys, uh, I've, I've pretty much only seen uh, the ones that we've been talking about, the more Giallo-esque stuff. I've seen Torso a, n- a number of times, at, like the New Beverly and stuff like that. Uh, he had done a few like weirder, more sci-fi things, I guess, going into the 80s. 
uh, American Rickshaw, uh, 2019, Hands of Steel. I don't know anything about these, but just the covers alone just make them look fucking crazy. So I was curious if you guys could tell me a little bit more about those. I mean, after the fall of New York, which is uh, takes place in 2019... Martina was a year off from the fucking pandemic, so congratulations. I'll give you the post-nuke sweepstakes, although I think Mad Max technically takes place in 2021, so maybe George Miller's going to take the crown here, depending on how things go this year. But After the Fall of New York is definitely a cash-in of like all those post-nuke, post-Escape from New York, Mad Max, a little bit of the Warriors type stuff. Italian sets the trend. They took it by the reins and they ran into the ground. And I wouldn't say it's peak Martino, but I think it's a lot of fun. And yeah, some of the model shots are kind of wonky, but like I, I think for a post Italian post nuke, it's a lot of fun. So uh, I would say about uh, about that film that uh, it's better than it, it's totally uh, you know like a Escape from New York cash in, but it's better than Escape from L.A. by a fucking several miles it's far more entertaining and fucking more expertly rendered than fucking escape from la you know escape uh you can't i would probably say i like it more like i would rather like on a watchability scale i'd probably put it above escape from new york even but i can't take anything away from that film because it is you know the originator of that sort of type of film but uh escape or, or 2019 um after the fall of new york is a fucking extremely entertaining film and george eastman is fucking completely off the chain in that movie he's fucking amazing now scott uh you mentioned earlier do you want to talk about your non-giallo martino pick yeah, I'm going to go with uh, one that a lot of people may not have seen, which uh, is called The Opponent, or uh, Uppercut Man, is how it was released by Maya on DVD in America. Daniel Green, who appears in uh, a couple of other uh, Sergio Martino films from the same like late 80s, early 90s era, uh, stars in this film. And uh, he's like a you know small-time boxer who... Who's trying to like you know he he's got dreams of like being a heavyweight champion, and uh, so he's doing anything he can to sort of like get into the biz. So he starts boxing for this like sleaze bag boxing promoter who's played by what's his name Giuliano Gemma. Things are going along great. He's fucking you know becoming a star, but then Giuliano Gemma asks him to throw a fight, and uh, he disobeys. And, G- and uh, this film is another one of those that has, like, you know, it's serious on one hand and has, like, slapstick comedy on the other, where Giuliano Gemma plays this sort of menacing mobster boxing uh, promoter guy, but his henchmen are, like, these, like, slapstick goofball doofuses who at the same time as being, like, the comic relief in the film, when uh, Daniel Green throws the fight... They find him and they break his hands and they murder his fucking trainer. So and these are like these are like the comic relief characters, you know, not to be fucking uh, dismissed at this point. Daniel Green still has one last you know, card to play, and it's that his girlfriend's father is Ernest Borgnine, who used to be a boxer. 
and agrees to train Daniel Green to come back and uh, he sort of has a, like a rocky like resurrection at the end of this film. You know, defeats the mafia and becomes a champion boxer with the help of uh, Ernest Borgnine. There's a lot of, you know, gory violence and shit mixed into it and comedy. And it's weird, you know, like the, the films that Sergio Martino was making at that time, uh, you know, like Hands of Steel, they were they were more like um, ripoffs, like, well, they were they were instead of like his his Jallo films, which were not ripoffs of American films. By this point, Sergio Martino had fallen into the same trap that a lot of other Italian filmmakers had of like just making knockoffs of like Hollywood hits, and that was kind of how they made their money. And like if you watch a lot of the you know the interviews with Sergio Martino on on all of these DVDs of these great movies we're talking about. He's very um, cognizant of the fact that, like, uh, unlike a lot of the other guys who, like, maybe Fulci and some of these guys who are a little more caught up in their own egos to really understand why their careers ended up the way they did, you'll always see Sergio Martino talking about the fact that, like, <clears throat> Hollywood just, there was a point where it, Italy was on par with Hollywood. They had the talent. And uh, there were no CGI or anything, so they didn't have to compete with Hollywood on a special effects level. So they had more money, but the only way they could show it was in, like, superficial things. Like, they had America had better cars to wreck, where in Italian films they were wrecking jalopies or, you know, little tiny um, compact Alfa Romeos or whatever. But there was a point when, like, special effects in America, like, took a leap forward, like, starting with like Jaws and, and the, the start of the American blockbuster where Italy could no longer compete. They couldn't keep up with Jaws or Star Wars. So their production started to look cheaper and by no fault of their own, they were no longer the powerful film industry that they used to be. So they started making these knockoff films. This is where the era comes in that you start to see the Mad Max ripoffs and the Escape from New York ripoffs and the Star Wars ripoffs and the Alien ripoffs, etc. And Uppercut Man is sort of like a Rocky ripoff, but it also incorporates bits of other like weird, uh, you know, uh, films that were made around that time that, that it's that it's borrowing off of. And it's an interesting period. And but Sergio Martino is such a masterful uh, filmmaker that. He managed to make these things work. You know, when he was doing ripoff films, he made some of the best ripoff films. I guess I'm, I'm probably talked uh, a little too much about it, but yeah, Uppercut Man is my pick, and I think Jim is probably going to go with something that like ties right into this and carries on with this uh, period of Sergio Martino. Yeah, definitely. And I've I've sung this movie's praises countlessly. It was on my top five, you know, Blu-ray releases of last year. I I can't sing the praises of this movie enough. It's one of my favorite discoveries, thanks to Cauldron. It's American Rickshaw. I can't stress how much I love this movie and how happy that it exists. It makes no fucking sense that it exists. Like, who the fuck is getting in a rickshaw in, like, late 80s Miami? Like, was that even a thing? I don't know. I didn't live there. People like rickshaws, but... <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the movie's like, I've said it before, it's a mix of like, a little bit of Big Trouble in Little China for some reason, you know, some action stuff, some supernatural stuff, little hints of giallo, but like, it's just 
a fucking insane movie with the Olympic gold medalist Mitch Gaylord in it and Donald Pleasance turning into a pig monster at some point. <laughs> it the movie's just un PC. It shouldn't exist. I, I I think at this point, like a lot of the Italian films, like they it, basically they were the asylum, but better. If you want to put it in a way, basically they were doing mockbusters. They were going right to the video store. Just trying to tie it in with like some of the later '80s martial arts stuff, but there's not really a lot of martial arts in this movie. Weird though, because it does kind of play like a kung fu movie in a way. Like it, it's not really martial arts, but it does have a bit of a kung fu feel to it. It does. It, it definitely plays like some of like those later canon stuff, like the Shokazuki like ninja movies. Like me, actually, you know what's a good comparison I never brought up that would kind of it's not exact, obviously, but a little bit of Ninja Three. Ninja Three in American Rick. But... Yeah, Ninja Ninja Three is just a ridiculous supernatural ninja movie with Lucinda Dickey from Breaking in. What it, what year was uh, Rick Shaw? Ninety. It was eighty nine ninety, and oh, yeah. it. I mean, it definitely feels like it's it's definitely a product of its time. And it's just like I don't you for the life of me, I can't figure out where someone's like, you know what we need to make this. It's on PC. There's definitely like a a threat of injecting someone with AIDS in it. There's a lot of like sleazy strip club scenes. Like it, it's somewhere between I'd say Big Trouble in Little China, a weird like kind of martial arts movie without the martial arts. I guess Miami Connection would be another one, probably because of the locale and like just kind of the sleaze sheen of like. Whatever the fuck is going on. And there's there's witchcraft, there's a cat, there's a cobra. <laughs> there there there's there's a fucking dummy that gets hit by a truck, which is impeccable. It's it's got everything I could ask for in a movie. Yeah, I thought it was pretty great. I, I was completely caught off guard by it. I'd never seen it before. And uh what a way for the cauldron label to fucking come out of the gates with that. So, shout out to Jesse. I know um, you actually did some liner notes for the upcoming, one of the upcoming Cauldron releases, correct? Yeah. And it's a fucking banger. I mean, again, I had not um, seen this film. And uh, it's called Beyond Terror. And uh, if you haven't ordered it already, do so now because it is a Spanish film. It's uh, shockingly uh, hedonistic. It's a really good, it's like, it's up there almost, not quite, but almost like on the level of like Island of Death in its like uh, gleeful um, hedonism. It's a cool movie for sure. All right. I, I got that on pre-order, so I'm looking forward to getting that. But I guess we've we've exhausted ourselves talking about Sergio Martino over like the last 47 weeks, it feels like. But Scott, it's good to see you via the internet. Hopefully at some point this year we'll we'll hang out at a movie theater again. So thanks for yeah. thanks for joining us again as oh, always. That's cool. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well we'll have a Sergio Martina pool party. American Rickshaw themed. Yeah. <laughs> we still we could do a whole another of we could do a whole extra episode just on his uh, crime movies. Yeah, um we're we're gonna do that at some point, so now that you've said it, you're now guaranteed to come back for it. Sergio Martino. He's like uh he's like everybody's favorite uh Italian papa. And he's still around, still kicking, and 
He might not be making movies, but like, god damn it, like I wish he would. Yeah. I I think even at his age now he could like make another fucking banger. He seems so spry when you see him like interviewed on he's like he's gotta be like somewhere around eighty two or eighty or something right now, and he's uh he just seems really youthful and uh full of spirit. I'd love to see him make a film. Awesome. But all right, Scott, thank you for joining us. And we'll be back with one last episode where we talk about Umberto Lindsay and the films he made with Carol Baker with filmmaker Travis Stevens. Until then, see you in the void. <laughs>